Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough. Today, we are going to be talking about the law and uh, issues with litigation uh, some issues with the litigation in specifics, and to talk with us, our guest is Ted Frank. Did you found these organizations, Ted? The Hamilton Lincoln Lincoln Law Institute and the Center for Class Action Abuse. Uh, right. We we founded the center. I founded the Center for Class Action Fairness in two thousand nine. Class Action Fairness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which deals with class action abuse, but right. not- uh, and then well, along with Melissa Holyoke, who has since gone on to become the Utah Solicitor General. We founded the Hamilton Lincoln Law Institute in 2018-19 to house CCAF and do other litigation in the First Amendment space. And was it originally just Hamilton and then you added Lincoln later or was it always Ham- like you're just like, no, we, we've got to have a... Well, the, the, the name was started Hamilton Lincoln, um, but it was named Hamilton Lincoln because we wanted to name it Hamilton. Uh, and it's much harder to get uh, three-letter acronyms on the internet than four-letter acronyms. Okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> okay. So uh, I want to talk about your work with these organizations, but uh, since you have not been on the program before, uh, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit just about your background uh, you know, how, how you came to what you did in your life before you started Hamilton Lincoln and uh, all of that. Sure. I, I, I had a, a conventional lawyer career. Uh, I, I went to a good law school. I had a good clerkship with a, a federal judge, Frank Easterbrook, on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, who He's, was, he is a good, yeah, tough uh, judge. Tough judge, I've argued. Tough judge, uh, considered certainly one of the best writers and, and appellate thinkers in the nation and, and, and definitely has a reputation for, for being a tough judge at oral argument. Uh, practiced in Washington and Los Angeles for 10 years or so and then went into public policy at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, there I was writing about among other things, issues of, of conflicts of interest in class action litigation. And I had the clever idea of sort of doing a publicity stunt. Uh, you know, I was, I was writing law review articles. I was holding conferences and, and doing all the things think tank people do. And I saw an opportunity to get publicity for the issue um, by objecting to a class action settlement in, in New York City. And to step back to what the actual problem is, um, a class action is a procedural device for aggregating litigation. Uh, if you have a claim for 10 or 30 or five or you know, a small amount of dollars, it doesn't pay to, to litigate these cases in, in state or federal court. But if you have many people with an identical small dollar claim, uh, a few hundred thousand people, or even a few million people, or even tens of millions of people with the same $5, $10, $30 claim, now suddenly it becomes economically efficient to, to litigate that and, and vindicate the rights of the, the people holding these small dollar claims. 
and and that's all well and good, but in the American system of doing that, uh, it's volunteers who who show up and say, "I hereby represent these ten million people," um, and the ten million people had very little say over who's representing them, and. When it comes time to settle the litigation, because very few of these actually go to trial, you have an attorney who's trying to maximize his or her own personal return, and you have a defendant trying to minimize the cost to themselves. And well, what's the easiest way to do that? You freeze out the 10 million people you're, the, 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 the class counsel is supposedly representing, uh, and you, you pay off the attorney. You don't actually give any relief to the class, uh, and and the defendant gets off cheaply, or relatively cheaply, or you know maybe expensively, but cheaper than than if if, if they're paying the class. And you know the the, the with with that in mind, the 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 simplest settlement is. Uh, I evil defendant am going to pay you the attorney five million dollars to go away and and waive all of your classes cl- your clients claims in the class. Uh, th- there is a procedural protection for that. Uh, the due process clause requires notice and a hearing before you affect the rights of people. Um, so the federal rules provide that. Uh, you give notice to the class members who are affected by the settlement, and that might be the postcard you get in the mail. It might be the email you get. Uh, all too common, it's a, a notice on page C33 of USA Today and, and maybe some <laughs> banner ads on, on, on your search engine. They run it on CNN, you know, so no one will see it. Yeah. Um, and, um, but... The idea is, is that the class has noticed, the class can then show up at, at the hearing and object if the settlement is too blatantly favorable to the attorneys. And then the judge has to approve the settlement before it can actually go into effect and, and waive the rights of absent class members. So judges will see through something really, really blatantly a bribe. So what happens is that uh, the parties create the illusion of relief. Uh, the problem comes when parties create the illusion of relief instead of actual relief. To exaggerate the num- amount of dollars going to the attorneys uh, and, and, and minimize the cost to the defendants. So the classic example would be a coupon settlement. Uh, GM settles a case. Uh, the attorneys want to get $30 million out of it. GM doesn't want to pay more than $30 million to settle the case. So they issue everybody in the class coupons that expire in a year for, say, a few hundred dollars off of the next purchase of a truck. Uh, but they, you have to purchase the truck in the next year. And then nobody uses the coupons. Many people don't even know that they got the coupons. Uh, they tell the court, oh, look, we we gave out um, hundreds of millions of dollars of coupons or tens of millions of dollars of coupons. And it turns out that only $50,000 of the coupons are, are cashed in. But meanwhile, the attorneys have walked away with millions of dollars because they supposedly generated all this relief for the class. 
the, 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 they, they tell the court, we, we gave out $30 million of coupons without telling the court that really this is only going to cost GM $50,000. So for example, one case where we objected on behalf of class members was a flower delivery service. Uh, they were, they, there is now enough case law that nobody calls their coupons coupons anymore. So they gave out e-rebates. Uh, the e-rebates were for a 20% discount on flower delivery, but it had to be used within a year. And uh, it, excuse me, a $20 discount. It was good with no other offer. Uh, it wasn't good during Christmas or Mother's Day or Valentine's Day. So basically these, these $20 coupons were never going to get used. And uh, when the court valued them at $20 each, it meant the attorneys could walk away with $9 million when the class really wasn't going to get anything. Uh, and we took that up to the Ninth Circuit twice and, and, and eventually uh, prevailed on those issues. Uh, but there are other ways that um, the parties uh, pretend to create relief without creating relief. A case we had in the Ninth Circuit that just got decided this June involved Conagris and their product of Wesson Oil. And the attorneys were very proud. We have, uh, Conagra has agreed to an injunction uh, and they will never put certain words on the label of Wesson Oil ever again. And then they got a quack economist to say this injunction was worth $27 million and therefore the attorney should get $7 million in cash. Uh, and class members could make claims, but, you know, nobody, uh, you know, the, the notice went out over the internet instead of to people who actually purchased Wesson oil. So nobody made claims and, and less than a million dollars was going to go to class members as the attorneys were going to get $7 million, but they were justifying it with this injunction. And the funny thing about the injunction was uh, Conagra didn't own Wesson oil anymore. So it was, you know, basically in joining me from labeling Wesson oil with things, I can't just, I don't have any say over what's on the Wesson oil label. And at this point, neither does Conagra because they had sold off the product in the middle of the litigation. Um, and, uh, so the attorneys were going to walk away of $7 million while the class was going to get less than a million dollars. Uh, we objected to that. Uh, the district court approved it. We took it to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit said, this is outrageous and ridiculous. And they've remanded it back down to the district court. And uh, somehow the the attorneys are, are still trying to get the settlement approved. And we'll find out what happens in a couple of weeks uh, at the hearing. But the, these are some of the shenanigans that, that go on. Um, another major one is uh, something called Cypre which is uh, just a funny word for we're not going to actually give money to the class, but instead we're going to give money to our favorite charities. And it's just a coincidence that the charities are um, class council's former alma mater or uh, some left-wing group that half of the class would probably, or maybe even a majority of the class would disapprove of um, or, or a charity affiliated with the defendant. Um, and it, it, that's a very classic example of, of the illusion of relief. But if the attorneys get the same uh, credit for giving $8 million to their favorite charity as giving $8 million to class members, 
uh, they're never going to give money to class members because, you know, wouldn't you rather have a big ceremony where you're handing an oversized check to your favorite charity than distributing a million $5 checks to a bunch of ingrates who probably aren't even going to send you a Christmas card. So, um, Cypre creates all sorts of conflicts of interests and we've revolutionized the law in litigating against that. And, and just about every appellate court agrees with us that this is inappropriate. The, the one that hasn't agreed with us, the ninth circuit, uh, we've, taken to the Supreme Court a couple of times, uh, once unsuccessfully, once successfully, uh, but the Supreme Court has yet to actually rule on the underlying uh, issue of whether you can do Cypre as part of a class action settlement. But the fear of us taking it to the Supreme Court has has substantially reduced uh, the number of cases where that sort of um, diversion occurs. And then there are all sorts of other shenanigans in the class action space, just in terms of, say, even when you have a real settlement with real dollar values, um, you'll see fee requests that uh, substantially exaggerate uh, the the money that the, the attorneys are getting. So they'll hire a bunch of unemployed lawyers for 20 bucks an hour to review documents and then bill them to the class at $500 an hour or even more, or they'll, they'll, they'll do other things that, that sort of exaggerate the, the bill to the class members. And, and we've had some success uh, taking that on and have won a couple of hundred million dollars for class members over the years. I wanted to ask, cause you mentioned the ninth circuit a, a couple times with different cases. Is that I mean, is that just like a coincidence? Is that is that like a hotbed for class action suits? If you're going to file them, you want to file them there, or uh, is it just a coincidence? Is it where the companies are located? Um, it's a little bit of both. The Ninth Circuit's the largest circuit, so they're going to have the most cases out of nothing. But um, all the big tech companies, or most of the big tech companies, are, are based in California or, or Washington and have venue or forum selection clauses requiring you to sue there. So all of these privacy lawsuits are, 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 are going to be based there and then they're going to settle on, on pretty suspicious grounds because um, the, 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 the companies do a pretty good job of defending themselves. But the other thing that happens is, is that uh, the lower courts are just so overwhelmed that uh, they push these cases to settlement. Uh, whereas in, in a different jurisdiction, you might have a harder time getting class certification. You know, it, 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 there, there, there's clearly a belief among class action attorneys that, that uh, California federal courts are good places to bring class actions. And you see a lot of class actions there. Whether that changes if uh, the Ninth Circuit comes out with some good opinions that that really limit the the ability to do an abusive class action settlement, and whether those cases move to other jurisdictions is an interesting question. But at the moment, uh, the Ninth Circuit is very favorable to class action attorneys on fees. Um, they've we lost a case two to one uh, where. 
uh, class members were going to get 91 cents back out of a $35 overdraft fee that the attorneys alleged were, was illegal. And then the attorneys got $10,000 an hour for that settlement. Um, and, and we said, Hey, there's a, you know, look, we're, you know, if you think you have to settle this for 91 cents, that that's fine. We're not going to tell you that bank of America has to pay more, but, uh, this $10,000 an hour is coming out of the, the class members pockets. And, you know, the class members could be getting a dollar 10 and dollar 20 instead if, if the attorneys weren't taking so much money and this, this seems kind of excessive for such an unsuccessful suit. And no, no, we were really successful. We got 91 cents. Um, and, um, so basically because there are tens of millions of class members, um, and they did things to like exaggerate the value of, of the relief. Uh, they were, they were able to get this gigantic fee at the, at the expense of the class and, um, Supreme court decided not to take that up. Unfortunately, though, other courts would not allow that kind of, that court kind of ripoff. Um, and it's unfortunate to see it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have people. Uh, sending me photos of their 91 cent checks and saying, what the heck? And like, yeah, we tried, we lost. Uh, not much we can do about that, but you know that your attorney has got very well compensated for that. Um, maybe somebody will sue them for malpractice or something. I don't know. It, it seems really kind of outrageous to me, but uh, we can't win them all, I guess. Uh, courts disagree over what's outrageous. So it sounds like your focus is on litigating, um, you know, as, as a response to outrageous uh, class action suits and so forth. But is there is there any political movement afoot? And if so, you know, is there where, where would meaningful tort reform happen at the federal level, at the state level, is it state by state? You know, give us a, a glimpse into that world. Well, it's funny. I started this in 2009 when it became clear I was not going to be in the McCain administration. <laughs> um, and to, to my, you know, in, in 2009, you know, it looked at the time like it was 1933 all over again. Um, and, and that we'd never see Republicans in office again. Uh, I, I'd been doing work, um, you know, proposing tort reforms, things that, that stopped lawyers from, from going after, you know, raising costs to consumers in, in abusive ways. But um, the Democrats post the John Edwards uh, vice presidential campaign were pretty solidly just, it stopped being a bipartisan issue. It, it just became a very a partisan issue for tort reform and in a democratic legislature and democratic government it it didn't look like there there was any room for ever to see federal tort reform ever again um and so i started this as well there are already these rules in place um, the, the federal rules of civil procedure say that the class action settlements can't be approved unless they're fair, reasonable, and adequate. And it's, it's not fair, reasonable, or adequate for attorneys to, to take the majority of 
the settlement fund. Uh, that's a breach of their fiduciary duty to the class. And my view in 2009 is, well, the rules are already there. And the problem is, is that nobody has the incentive to object for the same reason that nobody brings the lawsuit for $5. Nobody brings the objection uh, to a settlement of that $5 claim. Um, the only way it could be done is, is with a public interest law firm just objecting for the benefit of consumers who otherwise would not do this. Uh, you, you can't make money doing this, uh, at least not honestly. You know, we, we, we win attorney's fees when we win money for class members, but courts don't like paying objectors. So, we, you know, we had one case where we won $47 million for the class and and, and after two appeals, the court awarded us $33,000. Um, and, you know, we're a nonprofit, so what the heck? It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't affect my income one way or the other. It just affects how much fundraising I have to do. But clearly nobody is going to engage in a speculative objection on a contingent basis where you get nothing if you lose and, and $33,000 if you win. Um, so the only way to do this is, is with a public interest. And we did it precisely because it didn't require legislative change. The, the rules are already there in the books. Um, and it, it's just a question of courts honestly applying them. And we didn't think this was a Republican issue or a Democratic issue. I think everybody agrees. Uh, if, if you like class actions, you don't think that the attorney should be ripping off class members. You think the class members should be compensated. And if you don't like class actions, you don't think the attorney should be ripping off class members. It, 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 it exhibits the sort of abuse uh, of, of the system. Um, and, and we don't think of it as ideological other than the, the, just the basic principle that attorneys represent clients and have fiduciary duties to clients and, and, and courts should enforce that. Yeah, I think, so you were involved, one of the cases that I believe you were involved with had to do with the Flint water situation. Um, do you have like a little bit of uh, details of what was happening there in that case? Sure. That, that's a case where we weren't objecting to the settlement. The settlement is the settlement. Um, there, there are all sorts of things that could be said about the way that the settlement was struck, set up um, to benefit some attorneys' clients at the expense of other attorneys' clients. But we, we didn't raise those issues. We, we, uh, the, the state of Michigan settled for six hundred and some odd million dollars, along with some other defendants, and then the attorneys were going to take over two hundred million dollars of that, and we demonstrated that they were doing the sort of things that I described earlier. They were hiring uh, unemployed attorneys in Puerto Rico to uh, uh, review documents at, at, you know, and then paying them a pittance of money and then billing them to these poor, impoverished Flint citizenry at, at several hundred dollars an hour. Um, and, uh, and we demonstrated that they were, uh, overbilling in a variety of other ways. And we raised that objection and we're asking the court to 
to reduce the fee request by by tens of millions of dollars and return that to the citizens of Flint. Uh, and that was several months ago, and we're still waiting for the court to rule about how to handle that. Uh, it's interesting. When I heard about, when I first learned about this organization, actually, I, uh, I follow you on Twitter where you tweet about a, a wide variety of issues. But you're tweeting about I, uh, this case, and someone was attacking you as being like a uh, like a corporate funded shill or something. And I thought about it, and I thought, well, actually, there's no reason why corporations would want to give this guy money to do this, <laughs> but, you know, because uh, uh, like it's not uh, you. I mean, you just you described, I think, adequately that the dynamic that leads to both the defendants and the class action attorneys agreeing to these sorts of claims and i thought you know uh there's really nobody <laughs> who 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 has like a, a big financial stake in this uh other than the the millions of individuals uh who have like the tiny little stake so it's it's kind of similar to the original class action issue where uh you know how, like how is anybody uh you know crazy enough to 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 like spend all their time to spend their time doing this um, so I, I don't, I don't mean to call you crazy or whatever, but I, I do think it's, um, it's an interesting example of like, uh, sort of, you know, missing actor problem in our. No, it, 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 it's completely a collective action problem. And, and you're absolutely right. We don't get a dime of corporate money. Um, when we challenge bad Google class action settlements, Google spends a lot of money on very expensive attorneys to, to argue that they should get to settle this however they want. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I've, I've met with corporate counsel and, and said, you know, that this isn't your fight. Um, and, and it doesn't matter corporate counsel there, there, there's some, I, I think principal agent problems there also where, um, the law firm tells the general counsel, tells the CEO, okay, this class action is going away. And then we show up and, and now the class action might not go away if the settlement blows up and, and people are upset at us. Um, and uh, it, it's it's amusing. The, the, the Chamber of Commerce will pick and choose among our cases and publicize the cases, but they're very careful not to mention our name whenever they, they, they do a sort of a news blast to their membership. Uh, Hey, this court criticized this class action settlement. Um, See class actions are bad is, is, is their message. Uh, And, and, and it's, it's funny. It's the court did this and, you know, courts don't do things sui sponte. Normally they, uh, there, it, it, it takes people standing to come in and, and litigate the issue and force it to happen, and, and and somehow that posture of the case is just magically omitted from from the chamber's press releases uh, or, or 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 blog posts about the subject, and and uh, you know I have friends sending me the the, the chamber uh, statements, and and it's amusing, but they don't give us money either. Uh, and they don't give us amicus briefs. They don't give us support. Uh, we, we, we have some generous donors who, who recognize that what we do is, is very good, uh, for the law, for the world. Um, 
if, if I meet lawyers at an ABA conference or a Federalist Society, somebody will say, wow, you're doing the Lord's work. And, you know, well, you are um, doing the Lord's work. Yes. Uh, and, you know, that, that's flattering. Um, but when we show up in court, the plaintiffs don't want us there and the defendant doesn't want us there. And often the judge doesn't want us there. We're saying to the judge, hey, you know, this really complicated case that uh, these guys were going to tell you was going to go off of your docket. We're telling you that, no, you have to do a lot of extra work uh, and you should listen to us, the complete stranger you've never seen before, as opposed to these attorneys you, you who've been in your courtroom for three years, seven years. Um a lot of judges don't react well to that, um, especially since most class action objectors, uh, as you sort of suggest, are, are sort of crazy pro se's uh, who, 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 who come in and um, file papers in all capitals and, and written in crown. And, and, and so there's a lot of bad case law out there about how to treat objectors that you should, and, and they're, they're just courts who just don't listen to us. Uh, and we've had much more success at the appellate level than at the district court level. But um, I think, you know, and, and we have unprecedented track records of success. Appellants win 10% of their cases in the ninth circuit, for example, and, and a lower percentage elsewhere. And we've won, you know, I'm I'm seven and zero arguing in the Seventh Circuit, um, in in front of very tough, knowledgeable judges like Judge Bozer and Judge Easterbrook, uh, and Judge Wood, um, and when uh, I've won, I don't know, I think maybe certainly a majority, but maybe even a two thirds majority of the cases I've argued in the Ninth Circuit where appellants win ten percent of the time. And it's it's still frustrating. We feel like we should be winning a hundred percent of the time. We we there are so many bad class action settlements out there, and we have so we're, we only have six attorneys, and and used to have many fewer. Um, you know, our constraint is not uh, the number of bad class action settlements; it's the number of attorneys we have to to litigate them. And we don't litigate cases. We don't think we're a hundred percent right on. So let's switch over and talk a little bit about your other organization, uh, Hamilton Lincoln Law Institute. What does that do? How is that different from the Center for Class Action Fairness? Well, the, the Center for Class Action Fairness is now part of Hamilton Lincoln. Um, so Hamilton Lincoln's doing all this class action litigation under the CCAF name, under the H Hamilton Lincoln name. But Hamilton Lincoln does um, other stuff too. Uh, I think most notably uh, is our First Amendment litigation, uh, where um, and and I think the, the the case we're proudest of, excuse me, is um, the American Bar Association has been pushing for disciplinary rules that prohibit lawyers from engaging in, in speech or conduct that exhibits bias or discrimination. And then they define bias and discrimination in such a broad fashion that it, it, it's basically designed to censor speech uh, 
or a chill at least speech. Right. You can't uh, belong to hate groups like the Boy Scouts or the Knights of Columbus or. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, so, um, you know, are you, are you exhibiting bias or discrimination if uh, you criticize the Brown candy or, or, or affirmative action or um, just speak on a, a wide variety of issues uh, where there's a, a politically correct stance and then um, a, 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 a just a simply correct stance that 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 uh, is, is not um, uh, can can result in, in, in accusations. Um, and as we've documented, uh, Supreme Court justices, judges, professors, um, all get these frivolous complaints of, of bias and, and racism and, and uh, for, for really conventional observations of fact or, or, or just mainstream positions. Um, and if you have this rule that says lawyers are subject for discipline for, for giving speeches, taking a side on, on the affirmative action issue, well, that, 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 that's a pretty good way to shut down debate. And uh, we succeeded when Pennsylvania implemented that rule. Uh, we sued and we were the first suit ever to, to, to challenge these, these new rules that are starting to pop up in, in, in places like Vermont and Pennsylvania and Connecticut. Um, and we, we got that rule enjoined and, and then Pennsylvania has modified the rule and we're we're suing over the modified rule, which I th- we think is actually worse in some ways. Papers are still being filed in that, but th- this is a, an incredibly important issue because if the you know the the sort of uh, really abusive college woke speech codes uh, get placed into uh, licensing regimes for for lawyers. Um, you know, it, 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 there's there's just a, a a real danger to the um, to the public discourse. And then we do um, we've been doing some regulatory work. We challenged uh, in in our previous uh, organization, and then uh, moved it over to Hamilton Lincoln when we started it up. Uh, we've been the leaders in the forefront of the problem of regulatory agencies using their enforcement authorities to sort of uh, get private parties to create slush funds uh, that they would not be able to do had they actually enforced the law. But instead of enforcing the law and, and say, fining these companies or, 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 you know, making them give money to the treasury, they say, okay, uh, Volkswagen, um, please fund this billion-dollar project that we, the Obama administration, has re- have repeatedly asked Congress to fund, and Congress re- refused to fund it, but we think it's a really good project. So you, Volkswagen, will fund it, and, and we'll deduct that from uh, the fine we were going to give you. Um, and when that's happening, that's the DOJ and the EPA you know, basically acting as legislators. It's a huge separation of powers problem. They're, 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 they're bypassing Congress. They're taking money out of the treasury uh, 
and 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 funding all these programs uh, as their own personal slush funds um, without any congressional oversight, without any real judicial oversight. And and we think there there's a real separation of powers constitutional problem with that. Yeah, and are looking for opportunities to challenge that. And we had success uh, with an FCC proceeding where as part of merger review, they imposed a bunch of regulatory conditions on um, charter as part of their merger with Time Warner cable. Uh, and they imposed a lot of regulatory conditions on them and, and financial conditions on them that were just completely ultra-virus, were completely outside of the FCC's authority to impose. And if the FCC imposed it as, a, a, as an actual regulation, it would have been struck down by the courts under uh, the Administrative Procedure Act and various other laws. But instead, they were doing it as sort of a consent decree. We will let you merge uh, if you do these things that are completely unrelated to the merger, but we think are, 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 are just promote our ideological agenda. Uh, and we got the DC circuit to strike that some of that down. Yeah. Not, this, so the, the issue that you're describing sounds kind of vaguely analogous to the class action stuff where you have parties that are trying to sneak things into settlements that are maybe not that other not involved parties might object to, but they're, they're not there to do it. So. Right. And, 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 you know, that was exactly where I got the idea because I, I was seeing this problem in the class action space and talking within the movement about, uh, you know, somebody asked me, hey, did you see this government settlement with Goldman Sachs? And it was a fascinating settlement where uh, the DOJ settles with Goldman Sachs and, and announces a $3 billion settlement. And then you look at the paperwork and, oh, but we will give you a $3 credit for every dollar you give to this list of left-wing groups. And like, my goodness, like, <laughs> uh, the, the, this is the class action settlement problem, except it's worse because it's, it's DOJ officials abusing their government power um, and, and basically stealing from the treasury. We still don't know who Goldman Sachs paid this money to, but if Goldman Sachs instead of paying $300,000 to the treasury is paying $100,000 to La Raza. That, that, that's a real problem. And, and there are other weird things in the Goldman Sachs settlement too. Like uh, they, they basically created this whole mortgage relief program. And it was hilarious because it was a mortgage relief program that the Obama um, Department of Housing and Urban Development had explicitly rejected and said, this, this is a really counterproductive program and, and we're not going to we're not going to impose mortgage relief on this basis because it, it's basically going to prevent the market from clearing. It, it's just going to re result in, it, it's just kicking the can down the road and, and it, and it distorts the marketplace and it, it's a, it's a bad waste of money. Um, and it, HUD says they're not going to do it. And then DOJ who has no special housing expertise gets lobbied by some left-wing group to say, make Goldman Sachs, fund this program that HUD wouldn't fund. And I, I really think that that should have been a much bigger scandal than it was. Um, it got no press whatsoever outside of uh, conservative media during the Obama administration. Uh, the Trump administration 
got absolutely no credit for saying we hereby forbid DOJ attorneys from doing this. Um, and you know, it, 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 for all the allegations uh, justified or not of, of, of Trump corruption, it, it was just fascinating that the, the Trump DOJ uh, explicitly banned this sort of self-dealing by government officials. Uh, and you know that this is, and I, I see no reason why this should be a partisan issue. Um, you know, Chris Christie was doing this sort of abusive stuff when he was a U.S. attorney. So the, you know, Republicans can can abuse this system as as easily as Democrats can. But for some reason, it's it's Republicans who who are demanding the separation of powers. And January twentieth or January twenty first, Biden issues an executive order. We need to review this DOJ regulation and see what we can do to to, to reverse it. Um, and that hasn't happened yet. We're looking, we're, you know, we're monitoring it and we're ready to challenge it when it happens. But, uh, uh, we're, we're going to see these slush funds open up again sometime in the next year or two. Let me ask you this. How important is it to your work that the, that the general public understands these various abuses? I mean, it sounds like this is very inside baseball and are you able to, you know, how, how much more effective would you be if the general public knew about these things and cared about these things? And does it matter that much? Or are you sort of able with the funding that you have to go out and, and effectively do your work? Obviously, it would matter more if, you know, more people gave us more money. Um, like I said, our constraint is, is not uh, we're digging to find bad class action settlements just the overwhelming majority of them have some problem or another. And we were, we're engaged in triage. We, we sit down every month with a list of, of um, several potential class action settlements that we could object to. And, and we pick and choose where we can provide the most bang for the buck for our donors dollars you know, where we could make the biggest impact, where the legal issues are the cleanest, where, what cases might we be able to take to the Supreme Court if we lose, if we can't get the settlement improved. And, you know, if I had a dozen attorneys instead of six attorneys, we, we could bring many more of those. You know, if, if the public knew what was going on, I, I think they would complain harder. Um there are settlements out there and, you know, it, 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 it's, we, we've started to see this. Um, if, if the settlement is aimed at a demographic that isn't particularly consumer savvy, it's much more likely to be a bad settlement. The attorneys sort of modulate this to, 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 they'll, they'll, they'll push much harder when they're trying to rip off really poor people uh, who are never going to see the notice or are never going to understand the notice than they are, say, sophisticated consumers who, w- with a class where somebody might know to call me up and, and say, hey, do something about this settlement. And, and so some of the worst settlements we can't object to because we, there just isn't a class member who knows to come to us. Uh, so more consumer education would be better, obviously. Um, it, it's fascinating how the consumer groups 
you know, they'll, they'll complain very loud and hard about an arbitration clause. And there's not a single arbitration clause that says uh, every criticism that there is of an arbitration clause goes triple for a class action settlement because uh, the, the, the notice is worse for a class action settlement than for an arbitration clause. The, the, the effect on one's rights is much, much bigger. And in the class action settlement space, it's somebody actually trying to, to rip off the class member. Um, but the consumer groups are fighting loud and, and the law professors are fighting loud and hard and complaining louder about the arbitration clauses and don't say anything about the class action settlement space. And again, it's, it's where the money is. Uh, the lawyers want to get rid of the arbitration clauses and they don't want to get rid of the class action settlements because they benefit from the class action settlements. And it, 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 this is the Superman three salami shaving problem. Uh, the, the, the class action lawyers in the Bank of America case we were talking about were ripping off class members maybe 30 cents, 60 cents at a time. Uh, but over several million class members, that adds up to to, to millions of dollars that they, they, they took from the class by doing that. But, you know, nobody is ever going to hire a lawyer to, to, to complain about a 30 or 60 cent uh, to rip off, especially when the class notice doesn't even tell the class, oh, by the way, the attorneys are going to get $10,000 an hour. I mean, very often you will not look at a class action notice and, and be able to tell that the attorneys are ripping you off. You need um, attorneys who have experience looking at these things and know where the bodies are buried um, to, to know when a class action settlement is bad and when it's, 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 it's really taking advantage of the class. I always assume when I get those notices that uh, the attorneys are ripping me off, but I, I also think, well, it's like a couple bucks, so I'm not going to do anything about it. Um, yeah, it, it, it's not even worth your time to, to, to fill out the claim form, probably. Um, right? It, it, it's 15 minutes to fill out a claim form to claim $3, and your time's worth more than $12 an hour, hopefully. Yes. Um, and it, it might not even be worth your time to, to call me up and, and say, hey, what should I do about this? But uh, yeah, if, if you get a class action settlement notice and, and it seems suspicious and I haven't tweeted about it already, you know, drop me a line and maybe there, there is something there for us to do, or maybe we've been looking for a class member. Um, but again, our, our constraint is, is the number of attorneys rather than the number of bad class action settlements. All right. Well, and we do have a number of billionaires who listen to this podcast. So, uh, <laughs> Elon, Antho, if you're out there, you know, uh, uh, be sure to uh, to look up the. Hand. Yeah, let me say that uh, you know our budget is in the million dollar a year range, and it was much less than that the, the previous twelve years. Uh, we we provide a lot of bang for the buck. Uh, we we don't have marble offices. Everybody works from home. Um, we don't have a fundraising staff. We don't have a communication staff. Maybe that's our problem, but it's, it's, I just would always rather hire another attorney rather than, than somebody to issue press releases. Um, yeah, but you're on, you're on, you're on these massive podcasts with huge audiences like everybody. But, um, we, we really do provide, a lot of bang for the buck with a budget a fraction of the size of other 
conservative public interest law firms. And I, you know, we've, we've had just a massive impact. The, the class action space is much better now than when we started 12 years ago. And uh, there, there's still a lot of low hanging fruit out there. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for joining us and uh, good luck with your work. Thank you. What, what is this podcast? 